Hello and welcome to the Oxford Society for International Development podcast series. My name is Lisa Sito and I'm the Asia Events Officer for Oxford. Today we are joined by Dr. Hlajo, the current chairman of the European Rohingya Council, an Amsterdam-based European Rohingya organization seeking the end of the Rohingya ethnic cleansing. A Rohingya doctor by training, he was born and raised in the Rakhine state in Myanmar. Dr. Lajo fled Myanmar in 2010 and has now become a Dutch citizen. He has become a human and Rohingya rights activist for years and is now based in London as a medical doctor. He has set up Dr. Hubai, a Facebook page dedicated to raising healthy living awareness for Rohingyas by providing health information in the Rohingya language. We are very honoured to have Dr. Lajo with us today as we seek to understand the Rohingya situation and discuss the potential solutions to this devastating crisis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lajo. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me in this podcast series. It's definitely our huge pleasure. And first, could you outline the situation faced by the Rohingyas in Myanmar since 2017 and share latest updates on the Rohingya crisis? Yeah, this is very uh, important question to begin with, actually. So Myanmar military has set at genocidal persecutions against Rohingya in motion decades ago. You can trace back as early as 1960s impact. In 2017, Myanmar military and quasi-civilian government launched the final genocidal operations against Rohingya people in the name of clearance operations. During the clearance operations, all kinds of crimes punishable under genocidal conventions were committed against Rohingya people by Myanmar armed forces. Hundreds of Rohingya villages were burned down to the ground. Mass killings of Rohingya men, women, elderly, children, and the sick were sick. Uh, sick were committed and put in the mass grave across Rakhine states in different cities and different villages. Uh, still, the mass graves are uh, there. Uh, mass rapes were also committed. Forced deportation of nearly one million Rohingya were also committed. And you can uh, you can name you can name a lot of uh, crimes committed under international uh, punishable under international uh, criminal law. So currently, uh, remaining few hundred thousands Rohingya are living inside Rakhine State without basic human rights, access to education, healthcare, and free movement. We are completely denied. They are living just in ghettos, like open air prisons. And nearly 1 million in the camp in Bangladesh, the conditions are extremely unbearable. In a small area, nearly 1 million people are living. They are prone to infectious disease, mental health, trauma, psychosocial problems, crimes, you name it. So in very small situation inside Rakhine State and also inside Bang- in, in Bangladesh refugee camps, is like they are living just like in a prison without any hope without any, uh, uh, any access to formal education, formal healthcare. So there's uh, nothing you can say that uh, as a human being to, you know, uh, to live with. This is the situation the inside uh, refugee camps in Bangladesh and also inside Myanmar. Thank you so much. That has really helped us to develop a clear understanding of the severity and depth of the crisis. And I understand that you also volunteered as a doctor at the refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar. And could you share more about your experiences there and the plight of the Rohingya Muslims? Yes, at the start of crisis in 2017, we visited to the camps with a group of friends from our organization with some NGO members there to see what we can do. We knew 
to Dhaka, from Dhaka to Cox's Bazar, and from Cox's Bazar the next day to the refugee camps. And we visited to the border, uh, uh, no man's land. Also, we visited to the border area where people were coming in hundreds, thousands. Uh, and at that time, the situation in the refugee camps is really uh, because there were no camps at all. So they just uh, they were just uh, coming. Uh, they they were just fleeing the uh, Burmese military. They were just escaping to uh, and uh, running for lives. So at that time the situation was very very hard uh, breaking. Actually, to give a medical care um, to our community is something very pleasing to the heart. Actually, it has been my childhood dream. Uh, I wanted to be because we were persecuted and we were denied to to healthcare and our people from the villages cannot go uh, to the hospital and uh, there are hundreds of checkpoints in the in the in Rakhine state in, in the place where we were living so uh, when i saw the suffering of our people when i was studying and i wanted to be a medical doctor to help these people to come back there unfortunately i couldn't go back to my uh, home uh, ancestral land home uh, hometown I had to flee uh, Myanmar. When I visited there in the refugee camps, I immediately, we immediately set up a mo- set up mobile clinic. Hundred thousand people are coming, you know, in uh, in every day. So it was not enough. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Bangladesh authority mobilizes some also mobile clinics, some NGOs set up mobile clinics. But the problem was our people cannot speak, you know, uh, English or cannot speak in you know, any other languages. So it has been very challenging for other NGOs and uh, other uh, healthcare providers. We set up some uh, mobile clinics uh, one day here, another day in another places. So we were going, moving all around. So um, I did uh, with some other uh, team members, uh, I did for three months, uh, mobile clinic. It was uh, pleasing to my heart, but when you see the such horrors and suffering, uh, trauma, uh, you also, it is, you feel uh, it is like heartbreaking. So thanks to international community and Bangladesh government, they quickly mobilized, uh, build, they quickly uh, build the camps and uh, camps structure organized and uh, including uh, UNSCO was involved, WO, the World Food Program was involved and they quickly mobilized uh, humanitarian relief, also uh, healthcare facilities in different areas. So it was uh, to be, uh, to summarize, to give medical care actually, it was very, very uh, pleasing to me personally. And because I could do uh, at least some, um, uh, some serving to our community, which was my childhood dream, but uh, you know, it was also heartbreaking. So you, you have uh, two kinds of emotions. One is heartbreaking situation. One is, you know, uh, you feel pleased to, to, to give medical care to the to own members of community yeah speaking of your own personal experience could you share with us how it was like growing up as a Rohingya in Myanmar and the kind of discrimination that you faced yes yes actually uh, growing up as a Rohingya in Myanmar's Rakhine state was really uh, something special in terms of uh, suffering and um, the most memorable memorable suffering was to live always in a state of fear and arrest actually you are living in, a const, in constant fear of uh, arrest, torture. If not you, maybe your friends, your families, or someone else from your community. So you are always in a state of fear. So once you are in a state of fear, you are like living that. So freedom, freedom of movement was restricted. Access to hope and growing to human potential, potential was severely restricted. The school, 
at uh, healthcare facilities, hospital, and everywhere. In uh, you can say in every aspect of life, you are discriminated, you are intimidated, you are isolated, you are uh, uh, left uh, in the suffering of psychosocial uh, trauma. Actually, so life is like this. You know something uh, you you don't know because you have never seen something. Uh, freedom of movement. You have never seen uh, access to uh, the the healthcare freely, so you don't know even freedom. So you are just uh, living like uh, without hope, without uh, potentials, or to be even yourself. This was the situation when I was young. Uh, but uh, we can say our people are resilient. You know, you might compare the suffering of Rohingya people with other suffering, maybe in 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 Palestine or somewhere. But still, you know, you are covered by the, by the media, and you, you know you are asked, you are you are suffering, but you can tell your story to the to the international community and share. And you have in that way, you feel a little bit relief uh, because you can uh, share your story, your suffering. But in our case. We were not allowed to any, you know, access to any international media. At that time, there was no internet, there was no social media, and maybe there was social media, but it in our in our city, in our village, there were no electricity, there were no internet. There was at that time there was no internet there even. You are suffering, but you are unable to tell your story. You are suffering to anybody else. You cannot share it with anybody else. This was the situation, you know. When I was growing up in uh, in the village and in the city, yes, uh, fortunately, you know, we uh, we could move forward and come to settle in Europe, and we can see how the life of a human being should be, uh, how, what is the freedom, and what is the the freedom movement, and etc. etc. It's definitely very saddening to hear about the silent suffering of the Rohingyas and how there's just this severe lack of media coverage on the situation that the Rohingyas are facing. I understand that you are the chairman of the European Rohingya Council. So could you share more about what the mission of the council is and how it intends to achieve their goals? Yeah, actually, uh, the European Rohingya Council was founded uh, on three pillars. Uh, firstly, uh, we want to find a everlasting, a sustainable political solution to the problems we are facing, citizenship issue and civil uh, rights issue. And uh, we are trying to find a solution in very sustainable uh, manner. Uh, so this is a political uh, pillar in our uh, European Rohingya Council. Another pillar is uh, we want to rebuild our community because nearly uh, six uh, decades of suffering and genocidal persecutions and total destruction of the community structure and uh, cultural structure, religious structure. And uh, so we want to rebuild our community. So we are trying also this, uh, to rebuild our community. This is one of the three pillars. Another one is uh, the, the, uh, to mobilize uh, humanitarian relief uh, to the urgent needy people in maybe inside the Afghanistan state or somewhere else. So we are uh, based on these three pillars. We are trying our best you know, for the political solution. We are trying to raise awareness. We are trying to lobby the European uh, governments and also the other international actors uh, to take uh, actions uh, to, uh, to try uh, to solve this Rohingya crisis. 
And for the rebuilding our, our community, we are outreaching uh, other international NGOs to help us in terms of uh, education. And uh, for example, if for education, we are working with the Turkish government to, to get a scholarship for higher education for Rohingya people because Rohingya are denied access to education inside Myanmar. Also, we are uh, working with other NGOs to organize training skills uh, for Rohingya youth. This is our uh, rebuilding uh, programs. And another one is humanitarian relief mobilization. So we outreach humanitarian uh, NGOs to, uh, to mobilize their relief into the camps. And we sometimes we collect data from the ground, which parts of the uh, kind of states, in which village there is in need of urgent need of uh, clean water and drinking water and uh, in urgent need of uh, sometimes uh, in our area, uh, you have flooding you have storm. So when we have information, we share information with uh, NGOs so that the NGO mobilize their uh, humanitarian relief to those areas. These are the three important pillars of the European Rohingya Council. Thank you so much for outlining the activities and mission of the European Rohingya Council. Speaking of the potential solutions to the Rohingya crisis, how do you think it could possibly be resolved? And in particular, what does the international community need to do? Yes, this is very important question because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have to find uh, the solution for this uh, crisis. So Rohingya crisis is actually not a bilateral issue. It is not an issue between Bangladesh and Myanmar government. Actually, it is a regional issue. It is an international issue because uh, uh, Rohingya case is now in International Court of Justice and International Court of Criminal Court. And also in many uh, different countries, like in Argentina, there is a case going, going on against Aung San Suu Kyi. Also in, uh, we are trying also to do uh, in every European countries to build uh, the case so that any military, any Burmese leader who were uh, involved in this genocidal uh, campaigns, uh, can, if they travel to Europe, they could be prosecuted in, in, the, in, the, in the different countries. So we are trying this. So I, what I want to say is Rohingya crisis is an international issue. Uh, regional and international powers such as United States, European Union, China, Russia, India need to be very serious about solving Rohingya crisis. Now we are just saying that human, you know, such powers are just giving humanitarian aids. But how long you can you can uh, feed uh, nearly uh, one million uh, population? The, the long-lasting solution is to find a, a political solution to send this Rohingya back to their ancestral land with safe and dignified way. So there must be a willingness. Uh, uh, in, to solve uh, this Rohingya crisis. I strongly believe if UN, United States takes strong initiative together other, uh, with other stakeholders, including Bangladesh, Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia and other neighboring countries, and India also should play a very uh, important role, including China, because uh, China has a lot of interest inside the Rakhine state. And India has also a lot of interest, economic interest inside the Rakhine state. So as long as China, India is backing up uh, Myanmar, the issue cannot be solved. So the powerful countries, uh, at least one country like United States take initiative together with other stakeholders such as in India and China, 
I hope, of course, with Bangladesh because Bangladesh is involved because uh, one million population is in Bangladesh now. So this problem can uh, can be solved. Even big countries they are uh, they are struggling with the COVID-19, and uh, also there is election in 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 in, uh, in America. Previously, Trump was not very much interested in international issues. We hope that you know, the new administration in, in the U.S. Uh, under uh, Joe Biden uh, probably takes some serious step to, to, to solve this issue. You know, Myanmar is such a country, if there's no pressure enough, they will never take the Rohingya back to uh, Myanmar. They want to drive out Rohingya population as, mu- as much uh, as they, they can. And then uh, they believe uh, that uh, there will be no enough pressure on the, on, on the Myanmar military and government and then they can just simply play with the international community and Rohingya will, this uh, nearly 1 million Rohingya will live in the refugee camps uh, forever. So this will be uh, like uh, normal as usual. So Myanmar believe that way. So Myanmar is playing with the international community. So that's why international community need to understand that this, uh, the depth of the seriousness uh, of this Rohingya crisis and uh, need to uh, address as, uh, as soon as possible. Definitely, it's increasingly important to solve this crisis because of the urgency of the situation. There have been talks on the Rohingya's repatriation back to Myanmar. And could you explain more about these talks and whether or not it's safe for the Rohingyas to return right now? Yes, actually, the the condition to return to Myanmar is not uh, safe now. Even the Rohingya living, uh, Rohingya are still uh, subjected to daily uh, genocidal persecution, you, you can say, like, uh, uh, you know, there's uh, nothing uh, improved, you know, and even uh, worse than before. So the situation inside Myanmar is not safe at all to return for now. Myanmar has done nothing to bring Rohingya community back to their ancestral land. Myanmar, just, Myanmar is just lying and deceiving international community, okay, that we have done this and this and that. Actually, on the ground, we have uh, daily information. We have people there. You know, we have families there. We have relatives there in, in Rakhine State. Actually, Myanmar is even uh, actively uh, destroying the remaining uh, you know, uh, remnant of the villages, the infrastructure there. In the repatriation process, it was just uh, simply a talk. There is no substance in it. There is no improvement of uh, conditions of Rohingya people living inside. There are still internally displaced camps in Sitwe and in some other cities. If Myanmar is serious, Myanmar could, you know, uh, uh, could let those people living in internally displaced camps uh, you know, let go their, uh, you know, original uh, villages, original home, original uh, places, you know. So uh, it is, uh, uh, there's nothing uh, done, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for Rohingya to be repatriated in a, in a dignified way. So this is the reality. This is the reality of the ground. And it is also reality in, in, in Bangladesh. Thank you so much, Bulhaja, for explaining in detail the situation faced by the Rohingyas. We really hope that the international community will do their part in trying to resolve this crisis as soon as possible. And we just are really honoured to have you uh, on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time uh, to raise this Rohingya issue. For more information about the European Rohingya Council, feel free to visit their Facebook page. To find out more about Oxid, do visit our website oxid.org or our Facebook page. 
I'm Lisa Sijo from the Oxford Society for International Development, and I hope that you have enjoyed our podcast. Thank you.